Okay, back to Genesis chapter 17, where we left off last time. Last, last week, we saw once again God's emphasis on the Abrahamic covenant, called the promise in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New. The promise that was the basis for God's choosing of Israel and making them a great nation, giving them a land, and through them providing a Savior, the Messiah. The, those are the basic elements of this covenant that is so important. And God spends much of these chapters, at least the ones that are recorded for us in the life of Abraham, affirming and reaffirming and sealing and confirming the covenant he had made with Abraham. Thus, we see its importance. The last time, we saw that God wanted Abraham to have, to have a sign and a seal of that covenant. We, it's called circumcision, and we saw God establish that in, with, the, with Abraham in a desire to, for Abraham to have that physical external sign of his, of his sanctification and reality towards God. And, 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 God and, and God had told him in the first verse of this chapter before he instituted him, he says, I am Almighty God, in verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. And that really is the essence of our sanctification today. And today, we saw last time that, that God has given us an internal seal and sign, the person of the Spirit of God who writes and engraves the Word of God in our hearts was the seal of our salvation, and the life He produces is the, is the indicator of the new life we have in Christ. We left off last time in the middle of chapter 17 where we turned from Abram, who had his name changed, to Abraham, to Sarai, who was having, having her name changed to Sarah. So let's pick it up in Genesis 17 and verse 15, where he says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not ca call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. And then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And so here God turns to Sarai and changes her name to Sarah, which really means princess. Many aren't sure what Sarai means. It may have meant similar, but it's interesting that God named her, named her princess. And maybe it's an indicator to us, men, how we should view our wives, isn't it? And maybe we treat her more like a princess than a war horse. We, um, our relationships might get stronger, right? God calls her princess. And he affirms here that Sarah is to be the mother of promise. God was not interested in their plans and opinions. The, the idea of Ishmael was not what God had in mind. He said, no, that might have been the best of Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah's plan, plans, but it was not God's plans. He was going to choose Sarah to be the mother of Israel. Isaiah 51.2 says this, Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for I have called him alone and blessed him and increased him. And so God made it clear that his plan all along was for Sarah to bear the heir. God extends through Isaac this promise to his, Isaac and his descendants, and God chose Sarah to be the, the, be, be the mother, even though she was going to be the mother during a time of life which it was impossible to bear children, which is really 
much of the point of this story. God doing the impossible to prove that he is almighty God. Now, Sarah wasn't without flaws, just like Abraham wasn't without flaws, but God in his grace chose her to use her. When you study, you know, sometimes saints in the Old Testament, you wonder, how, God, how did God use them? I mean, sometimes we see the highlights of the story. We know the, you know, the big famous Bible stories, how God in his mighty power works through sinners, but sometimes when you examine closely the people, we thought, boy, they're, they're flawed people. But that's what God uses, isn't it? He uses the foolish to confound the wise. And God in his grace chose, and chose her and used her to be mother of a great nation. You know, and he also uses her for an example. We see Abraham throughout the pages of the New Testament used as an example, as a father of faith. But God also uses Sarah. In 1 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says this, for the, In this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and not afraid with any terror. So in this passage, we find that God uses Sarah as an example of submission to her husband. It's such that she called him Lord. You know, there might be wives sitting around that hear, hear that statement and think, there's no way I'm ever going to be calling my, Lord, my husband Lord. But maybe if the husband treated his wife like a princess, Maybe Lord would come that much easier, wouldn't it? But the point was submission. And God uses Sarah, Sarah who, who doubted, as we're going to see in the next chapter, as this really, this account goes on in the selection of Sarah to be uh, the mother of the heir. And she laughs in doubt and derision. But God used her anyway. And he uses her as an example of submission. In Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith chapter by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. In spite of her skepticism and doubts, God judged her faithful. And so here God uses a flawed person as an example of submission to her husband, as an example of a faithful one that God used to bear the heir of the promise. And this is important. Throughout history, Satan has, to, has sought to derail God's plan for the seed. I mean, that seed promise really goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when God told Eve that she was going to have a seed that was going to destroy the serpent. And, and that is an obvious indicator that uh, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout history, Satan has sought to derail that plan. And why do you think that throughout history, anti-Semitism has been so prevalent? The destruction of the Jews has been, been a... Been a, a frequent theme throughout biblical and human history as Satan sought to, de to destroy God's plan through destroying the, the line. And that's why the genealogies we find in the New Testament are so important because it proves that Jesus Christ is the rightful seed and the rightful heir to the throne of David. And that's why this promise is so important. And so God uses Sarah. It's the one who was imperfect, but one who is willing to be right with God. And that's what God uses today. He doesn't wait for us to achieve some state of spiritual maturity before he can use us. He wants to use us right where we're at. He uses the imperfect. He uses those who's, who are growing, whose hearts are, are right towards him, who keep a clean slate, who humbly submit to him. But he uses us just where we are. And that's amazing, actually. It's really amazing that a holy... Righteous, almighty God lives life with sinners. 
saved by grace and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that's what he did here for Sarah. As it goes on then in this chapter, we find the next question, God answers the Ishmael prayer. In verse 20, it says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. He's heard his prayer. God says, Abraham said in verse 18, that Ishmael live, might live before you, you. And you know, God heard that prayer. That's what he says here. I've heard you. And I'm going to bless him. It will make him fruitful. He will multiply and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. And then God finished talking with him and went up from Abraham. And so God heard his prayer and he answers his request. And God did make of Ishmael a great nation, did he not? Now, as we come to the last section of the chapter, what we find in the last few verses is Abraham's obedience. He immediately does what God told him in this chapter during their visit. God instituted circumcision. And so in verse 23, we find that Abraham took his family, and it goes throughout this passage. He took, took everyone who was in his household and, and circumcised them immediately. You know, God had just left. The conversation was over. And so Abraham said, why delay? Let's fulfill the, the directive of God. And while Abraham maybe had some confusion in regards to how God was going to fulfill the promise of a seed. He thought maybe it would be through Ishmael. And he, and he had some discussion with God over that issue, and, and God made it clear, no, I've got my plan, and I'm sticking to it. Here we see in, 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 in the directive of God that was perfectly clear. This is what I want you to do as my chosen people. I want you to, to have an indicator. Abraham doesn't delay he doesn't spend weeks praying about it, thinking about it, hoping he can come up with some justifying way why not to put him and, his, and the men of his household through that misery. And that's what God wants from us. Our obedience towards God ought to be simple, shouldn't it, when God makes himself clear to us. I'm always amazed in our Bible studies that we have together, how, how often our other studies correlate together, how they connect. On Wednesday nights, we were going through the book of Malachi. We started the book of Malachi, studying the last three books of the Old Testament. A period of time of Israel's history, which was dark, in which Israel had drifted from their God. And God, in the book of Malachi, throws out several probing, convicting questions or accusations or observations of the, of the darkness of their spiritual lives, of their wanderings from God. But he begins that book by asking this question, and I think this is really significant. He says, where is my reverence? That's how the book begins. And, and he asks, and he does that in light of some simple questions he asks through the book of in regards to their Christian walk, or as we would call it, the, their, their walk before God. He says, are you walking, are you walking in this kind of, as illustrated here, the simple obedience, the simple submission to God's will. God said it, I'm going to do it. Instead of finding ways to justify themselves, and, and as you read through this book, you find that's exactly what Israel did. They lived their Christian life, calling it that, their Jewish life before Jehovah, on their terms, according to their plans and their ideals. 
And if Abraham for us is a, is a picture of a man of faith, it is a faith that trusts God in the details of life. He one who trusts God in spite of how unreasonable doing the will of God may seem at this moment. And oftentimes God uses, brings, allows obstacles to come in, or Satan even brings obstacles in our lives that, that would cause us to question that immediate and simple obedience towards God. Sometimes it's in family matters. Sometimes it's in old habits that die hard. And I believe that's what God often seeks to do in our lives, by the way, is to break us out of molds. We all, we all have molds that we live in that we establish sometimes from influences that weren't necessarily biblical influences in our lives. And we justify our lifestyles and behaviors because that's just the way our family's always done it. I've always done it. That's the way it is. That's the way the neighborhood does it. And yet God often in our lives wants to break us out of those molds and he brings conviction and instruction from the word of God and what he wants is his reverence, his respect. To obey God, whether it seems illogical, unreasonable, or different to us or not. And so, our, so Abraham's submission here indicates his willingness to trust God and obey. Not think it through, not, not look at the consequences, not reason it, reason it out. He just did it. And I, I like the simplicity of it. He just did it. And, and, and this wasn't, by the way, a means of being right with God. It was simply a result of trusting God, of loving God, of knowing Him, and trusting Him in all things. Well, as we turn to chapter 18, here we find that this subject goes on. on an, in another event, we don't know how far apart these events were. Verse 18, chapter 18, excuse me, verse 1 says, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre. And that's where Abraham dwelt. He had pitched his tent there. And as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he, and he lifted up his eyes, verse 2, and looked. And behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, No, Lord, or excuse me, my Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the trees. And I will bring a morsel of bread. You may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by. And as much as you have come to your servant, they said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal and knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old when well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Well, I imagine having a child at 100 years old maybe is a laughing matter. But here, in a follow-up to God's discussion with Abraham, he comes and visits him. 
It's obvious in this chapter this was the Lord. The Lord appeared to him, it says in verse 1. It seems Abraham knew it was the Lord. And yet God came to him to detail his plans for Sarah to have a child in this personal visit to Abraham and Sarah. Now we know that this was precursor to the discussion about Sodom, but nonetheless, he came and visited, and Abraham asked him to stay, and he did. And I think that's it's so significant to understand that the Lord comes to us. He comes to where we're at in life. And for the lost, that means he saves us just as we are. And that's the song we sing, isn't it? And, and, and God says, and God saves all kind, and he invites all kinds to come to him. That's, you know, when that term is used in the Bible, to come, it just simply means that God is there waiting. The Bible ends in Revelation 22, or near the end of the chapters, in verse 17, it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Whosoever will may come. God invites whosoever's. And he saves, and he saves whosoever. In the scriptures, we see the gospel being shared, the good news being shared with Nicodemus, a, a, the ruler, a ruler of the Jews, with Zacchaeus, a lowly tax collector, a Philippian jailer, an Ethiopian eunuch, and amongst many others, God, through all walks of life, invite people to come. And what God isn't looking for a certain class of people, or if he is looking for a certain class of people, that class of sinners. Jesus Christ came to save a class of sinners, and Paul says, of whom I am chief. We don't need to clean ourselves up to come to Christ. We don't need to, to make some adjustments in our life. We don't have to give things up and, and, and avoid certain sins in order to come to Christ. You see, Jesus does those things for us once we become his child. But we need to see to come just as we are. We don't need to come with some level of commitment to come to follow him. Jesus will develop that once we belong to him. We come just as we are, sinful, lost, incapable of escaping sin, without the power to live as we are, without the wisdom needed to successfully navigate life. We come just as we are, as then God cleanses, forgives, restores, and gives us purpose and direction. He sets our feet on, feet on the right path and begins to teach us and train us the way we should go. But we come just as we are. God meets us right where we're at. No, he doesn't accept our person. Jesus died for our sins, but he forgives, he cleanses, and he clothes us with his righteousness and accepts us in Christ. Come. And that's, what Je that's the invitation Jesus extends to every whosoever will they come. And it's not that they have to come seeking far. Remember what Paul said? He's not very far from any one of us. He is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He's ready to save. But we also see that invitation to come extended to the believer as well, for you and I to come. And it's not that we have to go far and wide searching for him. He's not far from us. He wants to be engaged in our lives. In the verses we read in Matthew verse, chapter 11 this morning, Come, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly heart, you'll find rest for your souls. See, that come unto me implies to come wherever we're at in life. In this case, 
to the weary and those who are laboring, heavy laden, those who are overwhelmed and overcome with the, with the affairs of life. Jesus says, come, I can bear you up. I will give you rest. And it doesn't mean that the labors disappears, that Jesus bears you up in your labors. He upholds you and strengthens you. And we find rest in his ability to direct our lives. You know, just like being on an airplane, you know, some of the old airplanes used to have a single yoke, they call it, the steering wheel or the steering stick in an airplane. Most airplanes these days have a double one for the pilot and a co-pilot, but some of the older ones had one that swung from side to side. It was on a pivot. It was a wheel, so whoever wanted to... And what Jesus is saying, you know, swing the wheel my way. Now, still sit in the airplane. There still might be some turbulence, but swing the, swing the wheel my way. That's what he's saying. He's ready to undertake for our lives if we'd come to him. Hebrews 4.16 puts it this way, let, the, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, when is that? Well, if we're honest, every day. Time of need, grace to help, every day. Come boldly. He is there ready to give us the grace, to mercy to forgive, and the grace to help in no matter where we're at in life. You know, sometimes we think when we've gotten away from God, maybe we made you know, some really bad choices. Maybe we've really stumbled and fall, fallen. God's not saying, you know, get your act together, and maybe we can get together again someday. No. He's saying, come, bring it to me. His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. God forgives and restores a relationship, and he just says, come right where you're at and let God lift you up. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, in the context of Revelation 1, 2, and 3, this is not a salvation verse, which many use it as. Chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about the seven churches of Revelation who had, who had problems that Jesus addressed, all for maybe except one or two. And he says, you know what? You want to be right with me. You want to enjoy life as I intended. I'm knocking on the church door. That's what he's saying. Not the door of, not the door of a sinner's heart. He's knocking on the church door. Am I going to be central? Are you going to be like Abraham and have this simple submission to the Word of God? He says... As a church, as a family, are you going to hear his voice and let him in? Let him be preeminent and central in our life's service and worship. And the wonderful thing about that verse, he says, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. You know, here in this section of Genesis 18, Abraham invites them for some good old food and fellowship. That's what he does here. And that's what Jesus said in Revelation 3.20. He illustrates a relationship of dining with him and he with me. You know, I think food is a blessing from God. Now, some of us might partake more of that blessing than others, to our hurt sometimes. But God enjoys fellowship, and the, and the, and the table illustrates Fellowship, camaraderie, enjoying one another. That's why in Revelation we find the celebration when the, when, the, when the bride is united with the Lamb, we find the marriage supper of the Lamb. Many think that the millennium is going to be one big banquet. God loves parties. Now, His kind of parties, when He is essential, 
But God loves it because God encourages throughout the scriptures oneness and harmony and fellowship and, and enjoying the love of Christ together. And that's what he says in Revelation 3.20, and that's what Abraham does here. These, these three come to, come to visit, and one was the Lord, obviously, from this section. And he says, you know, will you sit at my table? Now, it was out under the terebinth tree. Maybe it was on a ground cloth. I have no idea. But he says, will you join me for some good fellowship? And they said, sure. And what did he do? He ran. He ran. He hurried to prepare a meal. You know, he ran to the tent, and he ran to get the calf. Though I find it interesting in verse 6, when he ran to the tent, he told Sarah how to make it. And maybe that was a husband's mistake. He told her to, you know, take how many measures and knead it and then make cakes. And she's looking at him and says, I've done this a million times, maybe. <laughs> but I know when he went to, went to tell the guy to take the good calf, he didn't tell him how to prepare it. So I'm not sure what the difference was there. But he ran. You know, Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 says this, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for, in, for by doing, so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Interesting. Now, strangers aren't necessarily mean strange people, but new people. New people to the, in Israel was to their, it was people outside of the, the Jewish community. People that would come through. These were strangers. And he, hospitality is important to God. And it's interesting here that it's connected with brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue, verse 1. Verse 2, do not be forgetful to entertain strangers. Some versions interpret that as saying, show hospitality. And God emphasizes that relationship, which often occurs around a meal. And it just tells us how important it is for the family of God to live in each other's lives, to live together, to fellowship together. And maybe God does that because he knows our tendency to become absorbed in our own things. To just want to do our own thing. You know, to live out in the back 40, as far away from people as we could possibly get, and only have interaction when it's on my terms and my time. And that's not how God paints a picture of the Christian family and the Christian fellowship. I think in glory there's going to be nowhere to escape other people. Now, maybe because sin is no more, maybe we won't be so annoying as we have a tendency to be to each other, but there will be no escape. And we'll have glorious fellowship with our Savior for, for the eternity to come. Because we like to, as Philippians describes Timothy, or others than Timothy, that we all, all tend to seek our own, not the things which are Christ's. Romans 12, 13 says this, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9 says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. <laughs> That's a good one, isn't it? God just can be so direct, can't he? How does he know us so well? You know, sometimes when we have our fellowship dinners, it's, uh, we, we tend to remember at the last minute, and, and, and uh, you've got to wonder sometimes if people say, oh, we got to... Got dinner already, month after month. I suppose I have to make something. and So that maybe on fellowship dinner we should put this verse up over the stairway to the basement. But, but, another, but it's a saying, it's a privilege, isn't it, to serve? You know, when, when I, the memorials, after the memorial service yesterday for Lorraine and the family all thanked me, and I, I counted the privilege to be involved 
in a family's life. And you can look at it as, you know, inconvenience, as a labor. You know, I had lots of other things going on in my life yesterday, but it was a privilege to do that. And that's why Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And so where does sacrificially serve others? And some, some of that is hospitality. You know, I heard someone say just this past week, I didn't hear it said, it was repeated to me, I guess, that sometimes as a believer we find out, we, we have to realize that good enough is not good enough. And we often get by with that, especially us real practical, pragmatic type, when we are doing anything, good enough. Good enough. It's good enough. You know, and you, but then you take a look at our God, and that is not his philosophy. Good enough. God loves to bless abundantly. Now, we don't need to expect that. We don't need to expect the royal treatment from others, but we should give it. The ex, sometimes going that extra mile, doing a little extra to, to make people feel they're special. They're loved, they're appreciated. That's what God does. And it's his love that's in us and motivates through us. I think that menta pragmatic mentality, oh, good enough, is the enemy of the love of Christ. And it's not that we should always seek for extravagance and luxury, but we should seek to bless as best as we can when we, when we deal with each other's lives, when we, when we do our best for Jesus. And that's the abundance I believe God would develop in this idea of hospitality. And that's what Abraham did here. Because he went and got the best calf. Notice he, he got a, a tender and good calf. And then he served that, the, that and the wafers with butter and milk. You know, good, you know good, good stuff. I don't care what dietitians might say, it's not good for you, but it doesn't get much better than that. Meat and bread and butter and milk. What more does a guy need? And so he got a good calf for them. You know, this picture, this, this again ties back to our, um, for those of you who have been enjoying our Wednesday night Bible studies in Malachi, it ties back to that Bible study because one of the first things God tells, in fact, let's turn there to Malachi chapter 1. It's the last book of the New Testament. You should be able to find it just before Matthew. And let's, let's see it for ourselves. Well, the, one of the first questions God asked them was in regards to this very issue, actually. Verse 6 says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? That's I mentioned that's how this book starts, says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Now the priests are the ones who offered the sacrifices on the altar. You have defiled, you offered defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. What, would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? 
Now this goes on, but this is the point God makes to them. One of the first questions and observations he makes is that when you bring your offerings, you're not bringing your best. And that's what I told you to bring. The firstlings of the flock, the best of the flock. They, weren't not, they were not to bring the lame or the sick. And yet it's very justifiable from a Jewish perspective because, you know, I've got to call these ones out of the herd anyway, so why don't I just offer those on the, on the, on, as a sacrifice, and then I'll have more cattle and more money to give to the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? God says, no, you bring me your first and your best. And that's the beautiful illustration of what Abraham did in Genesis 18. He, he, he just went out and got the premium calf to bring to his Lord. And that's what God wants from us. God, I, I tell you what, God is not interested in your disposable time and your disposable income. That's not how he wants to be treated. God expects us to give our first and our best to himself. And that's what he scrutinizes here in, in, the, in Israel, here in the book of Malachi, when they had drifted from the Lord. He's saying, you're proving where your heart is. You're bringing the sick and contemptible. You're not giving me your best. And for you and I, our best today, since we don't bring cattle in here or sheep in here, our best is ourselves. Romans 12.1 says we're to offer ourselves a living sacrifice. It's a spiritual sacrifice. It's giving him our life. And that's what he wants. He wants our best to be given to him. And going back to Genesis 18, that's exactly what Abraham did. He gave him our best. And yet, we understand the dynamic. In the Jewish life, in the economy, which was very weak at the time, in the book of Malachi, it would be very easy to justify this behavior. Because it's a risk. And it's always a risk that can be the obstacle to faith. And yet what we've seen in the book of Genesis is how big our God is. In fact, this whole story of having a child this late in life is to prove the character of the Almighty. And that's why he says, and ask them this pointed question, is anything too hard for the Lord? In verse 16, is anything. Yet so often we fail to walk by faith because we see a risk in certain areas of our lives. And oftentimes, like I said, it's with our itsy bitsies, it's with our, it's with our time, it's with our budget, with other things that are important to us. And we think we just do what the Lord says. That says, what, what's going to happen? And we forget that God is able. That he cares. He personally came to Abra Abraham. He comes to us and invites us to to lay our cares on his lap and to find rest in him. And as long as we want to re re retain control of our lives, there's no rest. Nothing but anxiety and worry, apprehension. But we throw that yoke, that steering wheel over to him. We find rest. And it doesn't mean life won't get bumpy or challenging. But we can find rest in his ability to carry us to see us through. And we enjoy that the most when we give him our best. We say, okay, Lord, I'm going to consider you first. I'm going to put you first. I'm going to serve you first. And just trust you with the details. That's a, a, our flesh is going to just quiver with fear when that happens. But we, when we rest in the promise of God, we find the strength to trust our God.
And so God makes this promise to Sarah that he's going to return at the time of life, and which, which in New American Standard Version, I think, translated this time next year. And uh, Sarah laughed, just like Abraham did back in the last chapter. They laughed. There's a lot of discussion among theologians about the nature of that laugh. Here God corrects Sarah and says, you know, you did ask why you laughed. He didn't ask Abraham that question. Some believe Abraham's laugh was a laugh of relief and a laugh of wonder. You can decide. The Bible doesn't make it clear, but you can understand why from a natural point of view at at 90 and 100 years old, there 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 could be doubt or skepticism. You know, you've got to be kidding, Lord. Wait till the neighbors hear this or whatever. And yet, God reminds them, is anything too hard for the Lord? And so God brings them. And as bringing them and developing them, just like he does you and I, from living life in light of the possible to living light in light of the impossible because of our God. That's the lesson here. We limit God with what we think is reasonable or possible. And God is patiently and lovingly bringing this couple along to help them to realize, and then putting it in the pages of Scripture to help you and I realize that God is a God of the impossible. He can care for us no matter how dark it may seem, how far we've wandered. how challenging the obstacles of serving Christ. God wants to see he does the impossible. And you know, he does that today, even in changed lives. As you look around us, and maybe you look at your own heart, where would I be without the Lord? You look at others who God has changes, who, you, who made changes that you never thought could be made. He answers prayers that we never thought could be answered. He unifies saints that on the natural plane, may not want to have anything to do with each other. There's so many aspects of the miracles of the power of God as he captures us by the love of Christ. And I think the lesson of the story is found in the naming of the child, Isaac, which means he laughs. Isn't that funny? What a, what a, what a way to be named. He laughs. That's my name. He laughs. And maybe it was... That name, that was a reminder of a God who does the impossible. What we had normally laughed at, be skeptical about. Steps we would never take. We take because God does the impossible. It is that very character of God, I believe he wants to use this lesson to impress upon our hearts as a foundation of our faith, that we might find rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are an almighty God. And it is beyond our imagination to, to know that the creator, the one who spoke this world into existence, is our, has become our savior. He is a personal God who loves us and cares for us. He knows our, our, our thoughts. He knows our hearts. He's numbered our hairs. He knows our comings and goings. You created us and formed us in the womb, Father. You're intimately involved in our lives. And that's just an amazing concept, Father. But thank you as well that for your great mercy and grace that you extend to us. We're like Abraham and Sarah. We are unworthy, undeserving, unfit, unqualified. Father, we often sin and fail, and yet you have 
forgiven us in Christ, cleansed us and clothed us with his righteousness. You accept us as a beloved one, and then you use us in your power by your ability in spite of ourselves. We're so thankful for that. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to trust you in the little things in life, in the everyday things, and especially in those things that challenge our trust. Help us to remember who you are, and that you do the impossible. And may we expect that from you according to your will in our lives. So impress these lessons upon us for your glory now we pray in Jesus' name.